and welcome back to Star of the Ego, Feed the Soul. I am your host, Nico Barraza. And if you don't know already, I started a donor box campaign for the podcast. I do all of this work uh, pro bono to bring the episodes to you guys on a weekly basis, hopefully. And so uh, if you have the means to help out and to make a donation to support the podcast, uh, feel free to click on the link in the show notes. You can make a one-time donation or make a monthly contribution. And in any regards, it is very appreciated. Also, if you haven't left us a five-star written review on Apple, please do that and subscribe on Apple and Spotify podcast. So I'm really excited about this episode, ladies and gents. Mr. Rainier Wild returns again. This is his second time on the show. And during our first episode, it had such a huge response from so many of you. And I received a lot of DMs after the episode launched because Rainier was very candid and sharing about his infidelity with his partner, Christy, and how they were able to navigate it, grow from it. Um, the He sort of alluded to the amazing emotional maturity she had and the steadfastness of her and her um, and, and all their uh, support system throughout this. And so I received a lot of questions and I really wanted to focus this episode with him around that experience, because I think that's a an experience a lot of us um, have, have, have sort of experienced with in our lives, either from one end or the other. But I don't think there's a lot of episodes on it specifically from the firsthand perspective. I think a lot of people are talking down to it or over to it and not from within it. And one thing I really appreciate about Rainier is he is uh, bluntly honest and has such a poetic way of describing scenarios and situations um, and a way of putting emotions into words, which I think is is quite a rare gift. So um, I asked him if he would come on the show and, and talk to me more about it in depthly. And of course, being the lovely human he is, he agreed. And this episode is super powerful. It, uh, we talk about shame, about guilt, about coming around from it. He talks about all the resources he used as a man to um, take accountability um, and own up to his mistakes and also how to not let those mistakes eat him or define him and how to uh, change his behavior, how to be different. So if you've ever cheated or you've been cheated on or you've been a person that people go to for advice in these situations or scenarios, this is a really good episode to listen fully and openly to uh, with your mind, but with also your heart and with compassion as well too. I really want to thank Rainier for coming on the show again and being so gracious and sharing his story. And this is going to launch on Monday morning. But as we get into the episode, uh, Rainier even mentions, and and I thought this was a brilliant idea. I was actually going to ask, but I didn't want to overstep a boundary. He said, hey, you should have my partner, Christy, come on as well too and you know, explain sort of the same situation from her point of view. And I was like, that's amazing. I would love to do that because very rarely do you have a couple that can talk so openly about this, but that also has remained together through a betrayal like this. And uh, Christy is a marriage family therapist. She's, you know, does that professionally. So her episode is going to launch Friday morning. And I'm really excited for you guys to hear that one as well, too. But again, I'm thankful to both Rainier and his partner, Christy, for coming on and sharing their story with us. And I want to throw a quick shout out uh, to Rainier's new book, As You Are. Uh, it's a phenomenal read. I'm halfway through it now. I was thankful enough to get an early copy. You can order the book on Amazon. I'll throw a link to that book in the description. Go order one, ladies and gents. It's a phenomenal piece of work. Uh, if you like the discussion that Rainier and I get into in this episode, no doubt you will like the content in the book he has written. So go purchase it and leave him a five-star review on Amazon about the book. If you enjoy it, if it connects with you, send him a DM on Instagram, post the book online, tag him in it and share this episode as well too. If this episode is powerful to you, if it connects with you, if you need to share it with someone that's going through a situation like this, whether it's a man or a woman um, or a couple, wherever they are on this road, or if they haven't experienced this, but you know, you want to, again, I always think preemptive education is our best defense against anything. Right. And so um, that's why I'm doing this work is to hopefully connect with others. Um, I get a lot of DMS throughout the week of people asking me, about different episodes and about what I think about this and that. And I really appreciate those. I love when you guys engage with me. Um, and of course, when you comment on the posts or the videos, 
that I'm throwing out there. That means a lot. And of course it just contributes to this community we're building, which is hopefully just to raise uh, awareness of connecting with our deep, deeper selves and owning our shit and becoming better humans together, not only in relationships, but also individually for ourselves. So this one's a heavy one, guys. I hope you're ready, Um, but it is very good. And again, I appreciate you all being here. And without further ado, Mr. Rainier Wild. Well, Rainier, thank you so much for coming on Star of the Ego Feed the Soul for the second time. Um, I had such a good time chatting with you last time and there was such a huge positive response from everybody. And you're obviously such a brilliant man. I, I want to have you back on and and chat more about some things and, and possibly get into your book and, and chat about that. Cause that is, that is a, a release basically. Right. I, I think it's like, yeah. it's out, it's live now, isn't it? It's out, it's live. It, uh, it climbed its way to a, a bestseller status for about 12 minutes. Uh, 30 people bought it. I'm going to be so excited <laughs> on my next edition. It's going to say over 100 copies sold um, eventually. I'm so excited, <laughs> but no, in all seriousness, it's out there and amazing. And I, I ordered mine. Ah, well, you're one of the 12. I haven't got my copy yet, but I'm excited to read it. <laughs> hey, you're off to a good start, my friend. I like it. Um, so I, I was curious because I got a lot of questions and, and I'd love to, if you feel comfortable talking about this, but, um, in our, in our first episode, we talked about infidelity and about the experience mm-hmm. you had with your partner. Wow. And, um, a lot of people submitted questions are like, how did, you know, Rainier and his partner navigate that? How did they come back from that? How did they heal from both perspectives? And I was wondering, you know, it's something that a lot of us experience, you know, most of us have been on one side or the other, or we've been on both, you know, in the case of myself. And I'm curious on, you know, what you think and and how you guys navigated that, because I, I look into work like Esther Perel's and other people that, that really sort of redefine infidelity and how we process it in this sort of romanticized culture we've built. And, and for instance, why it happens, because I think it happens for many different reasons. Mm-hmm. But I'm curious, uh, you know, on if you're if you're willing to share um, just more about how you guys healed and you know, how you sort of stayed together and, and continued a relationship um, and continued to meet each other. Because I think a lot of people are looking for that path forward. Um, if, you know, uh, they're unfaithful or they're, they're unfaithful uh, or they're, or they're cheated on and how to move forward from that with their partner. If they're still in love, they still want to work on things. Wow. Start with the easy questions, Nico. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> you know me, man. I come, I'm, <laughs> I come swinging. <laughs> I'm so glad you started here. I was actually just just talking to a, a wonderful young filmmaker, and he was talking to me about uh, the stories that give me life, the stories where the juice is for me. And I said, God, I got to be honest, almost all of the stories for me where the life really is inhabit these places, these profound moments uh, of heartache and heartbreak. Um, including this one. Yeah, it's very close to me. And I think that the reason why there's so much here for me is, is um, this is where the human heart lives and dies, isn't it? We, we, we are in relationship with one another. This is where the wound begins. This is where the wound is healed. Um, and so I think it is only natural that this is probably where we would start in my story and maybe in so many others. You know, you ask these questions, why does infidelity happen? Maybe we even start there, right? Why did infidelity happen? I had one very gracious um, reader and follower offer to me and said, well, you know, uh, maybe it wasn't your fault. You know, maybe you just were were um, in a world that was inhospitable to your desires. <laughs> I love that. How, how gracious. Wouldn't that be wonderful to say that somehow or another I was this mm. enlightened being, this enlightened soul, and that nobody got me and uh, nobody understood me. And so, yada, yada. That's not the truth. The truth is that I had designed a life that was um, inhospitable to reality as it was. I had become a lie in so many different ways. 
I can think back of being um, a child and my older sister telling me that she would rather tell a lie that brings a smile to the face than a truth that brings a tear to the eye. And I remember thinking at the time, I was only eight or nine, I remember thinking, oh, that's a good one. That's a good one. I kind of tucked that away. I remember hearing my father, who I think I've mentioned before, was a a well-known minister. And I remember him saying that often quoted statement, never let truth stand in the way of you and a good story. And so it's interesting, these cultural idioms we hear, you know, whether you've heard them or not, I heard them. And I begin to internalize them. And I begin to internalize that the one thing that mattered the most to me was the good feelings of others. If I just had their good feelings, if I just had um, this positive experience that things were all right, we learn certain things as children, don't we? And I learned certain things. What I learned was to make people feel really, really good. If I could just, and, and, and it didn't have to be true didn't have to be real. It just had to feel good. And of course, I cut away a number of things in my own life in order to make people feel good. And the truth was one of them, you know? And I think that I had a very difficult time keeping agreements. I look backwards and I think, man, if I told you I was going to be someplace at three, you'd be lucky if I showed up at 3.30, you know? Um, and I wasn't keeping any agreements. You know, I was cheating on time. I was cheating on tests. Why wouldn't I also cheat on a partner? I I hate to zoom out and get really global because you run the risk of justifying your own bad behavior. But I start to think, well, that's not all that abnormal. Culturally, we are taught, I think, almost more than any other um, value to look good to look good at all costs, mm. um, be in the right, be justified, be very reasonable. Um, and I think necessarily we hide a lot. We hide a lot of our thoughts. We hide a lot of our feelings and we hide a lot of our experiences. And I certainly embodied that. So when I look at my life and I go, well, God, what are the causes? <laughs> well, that's prime target number one. I had created a life inhospitable to telling the truth and to keeping my agreements. Yeah, like at every step of the way. I think also I was profoundly terrified to be alone. Hmm. To be alone meant to be lonely. I think for a lot of people, that's the truth. If I'm alone, I'm lonely. I didn't know how to be alone and be okay. You know, and so, so much of what I did was a way of just connecting so that I could, um, that I could feel all right in that moment as if I, I needed someone else's reflection to know that I was real. And if you weren't in the room, I needed someone else's reflection to know that I was real. I became a kind of intimacy junkie as it were. I needed that, that hit in order to feel valid. So all of these different ways and all of these different things were kind of created and operating there in the background all the while. Um, and I've talked about that a lot before. So when these things burst forward, of course, your eyes fixate to a single point, right? Oh, he cheated. You know, oh, uh, he was unfaithful. My partner and I, the way we think of it is really far less about the actual event, the catalyst that draw the that draws the conversation forward, and much more to the life that we both separately and together had created to support those actions, those events. For me, that's where I start. So we had created this undergirding so that when you begin to deal with and look at the actual things, you're not dealing with and looking at the actual um, infidelity. It's far larger than that. (laughs) And so unwinding that knot is 
far bigger. It is so easy to, to look at something and go, oh my God, well, either I accept his bad behavior or her bad behavior, or I don't. And if I don't, then I'll have to address it and I might leave him or her, or I, you know, that's really easy to fixate on the, on the issue that is causing me pain, the symptom. It is far more difficult to address the whole realities that gave birth to that symptom. And that was our commitment from the very beginning. That was my commitment. Um, it wasn't always successful. But the road out of hell really begins with looking at and acknowledging that you're in hell. And you have to see the complete and total hell you're in. And as much as we were able to, that's where we started, that we were in hell. And uh, that became very, very clear to me. I'll tell you what, one of the first things that I did was I reached out to, um, to specifically other men who had been through this before, other men who had, um, who had either been unfaithful or had experiences of profound scandal in their own life where their own choices had, uh, you know, caught up with them. I reached out to them and I said, I, I, I need to sit with you. I need to learn. They were mentors to me. They were much more than that. They were dear friends. They walked through the fire. Um, they were rather unflinching, not in their support, but in their, their uh, words of intensity to me. They were truth tellers. They were mirrors that I needed. Um, we both reached out to a network of friends. It didn't include family initially. Um, I think family is sometimes so difficult. You know, family is one of those wonderful things. As friends are, th there's kind of a deliciousness of agreement that comes with them. You know, like, oh, it feels so good. I feel so validated. Right. Particularly for my partner, that was a, a, mm -hmm. a wonderful thing that, that I think um, she didn't actually allow herself. She wanted her own vision of her own complicity in these things. Um, it's a rather unjust thing. Maybe the next time we come on here, you can have her on as well. I'd love to hear her perspective on a lot of these things. But I yeah. think one of the things she would tell you uh, in that experience was she, from the very beginning, asked, how have I helped create this situation? And that's a, a tremendously... Um, mature and responsible question. She didn't ask it of me, by the way. Uh, she asked it of herself. And that was part of unwinding the knot, just as I was asking that same question, of course. So it begins with hard questions and it begins with um, surrounding yourself with people who will ask those questions with you. That's where it started. Phenomenal answer, my friend. The, uh, <clears throat> the I think the depth of emotional intelligence by your partner to be able to ask that question in the midst of pain is incredible. I think that, you know, looking at myself and my own experiences, uh, there are many times I wish I would have the wherewithal and the sort of emotional groundedness while being triggered or being hurt to ask myself those questions, mm -hmm. um, you know, to really be courageous enough to look at the answers too, um, knowing that, you know, even um, in pain, we are we are not merely victims, and we talked about victimization a lot on the, the last time I had you on. So that's thank you so much for sharing. That's incredible. You you brought up having this sort of community of men, and I think a lot of men don't have those resources, and men and women. I mean, maybe women a little bit more so. But um, where did you find where did you find these these men? Like, you know, what would be your recommendation to other men that are going through similar things that you know? don't have this community, maybe don't have a parental figure or a wise elder that they can look up to that's had this experience, um, you know, specifically with infidelity. Like, how did you go about finding these men? Is this through walks of life? And obviously you being a very special person, I'm sure you attract people, you know, gravitate towards you, but you know, how do we find a community like that? God, I, I had not actually remembered certain details of that story in a very long time until you just asked this question. So I'm now remembering just how risky a place I found myself in, in those moments. A number of years ago, I had heard of a pastor who had um, been unfaithful, who had stepped down and who had rather oddly become a janitor. Um, afterwards just lost everything except didn't lose his partner 
they stayed together in this amazing um, situation. I had heard this story a number of years ago, and I knew that he was in the same town, actually. And I knew that his life had changed since then. He was no longer a janitor. He was um, in this wonderful situation. He and his partner were thriving. Um, and that he, I knew that he was a guest, a, a speaker at a, at a congregation. Uh, and my partner and I did not attend church, but something in me knew that I needed access to this human being. So we attended this church. Now, having grown up in in this faith, there's kind of like this thing that happens, you know, when I sometimes go within like 20 feet of those environments, my neck starts to get real itchy. You know, it's like, uh, I do not want to necessarily be here. I do not want to submit to this environment. But I tell you, I was so desperate. We were so desperate for some bit of... Uh, perspective or input that here we are now. So mm. he's talking, he's sharing this wonderful kind of lecture and speech and um, he gets to the end of it. And uh, I go up to him afterwards. I wait very politely. He doesn't know me, of course, and I know him only by reputation and probably news stories. And I go up to him and I say, you don't know me but I know what happened in your life and I know uh, what you did. And of course I, I see him, you know, just go pale because who wants to hear those words? You know, even if you've been very disclosed, even if you've been very forward in that, I mean, who wants to start there? And I said, um, mm -hmm. my wife and I pointed her out, uh, and I are in the exact same spot you found yourself in all those years ago. And we don't know where else to turn. And I'm wondering if you could talk to us. The most amazing thing happened. He grabs his partner. He, he literally stops talking to all the people who had crowded around, around him. He grabs his partner and says, I think we need to talk to this couple. And for the next three hours of our life, the four of us sat in you know a borrowed office and um, just sobbed together. Um, you know, that was a kind of a hijacking moment, right? And I look back on that, I think, God, we were all so brave. <laughs> um, another gentleman who I knew professionally, um, but had never engaged with in this way, I called him up and said, hey, I, 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 um, I know this is a strange request, but I'm wondering if you could meet me for coffee tomorrow morning. He said, huh. Well, that's interesting. I wouldn't have expected you to call. I said, yeah, I know. And uh, I sat down with him. I told him everything that had happened. And boy, he started to drill me with uh, enough questions um, to let me know there was a lot more going on than I had thought. <laughs> and uh, he became a mentor. Both mm -hmm. of those cases, I think, um, what was I doing? I was doing what a lot of men do, a lot of people do. I was grasping at straws. And these were kind enough elders to respond and say, yes. Now, here's the thing. I would not have known who to ask if those people hadn't been transparent at some point in their life and done the very hard work of saying, yeah, I did this. They took responsibility for their lives at some point and started to be very vocal. They started to live out loud. I admire that tremendously. It's one of the reasons why I talk about the things I do. Um, because I think it's important that you have truth tellers out there who are saying, hey, here, here's some of the realities that have happened for me. I'll tell you one other person who came forward at that time. Um, my partner had told uh, her sister-in-law very early on in the process who uh, it was very painful. And that was the only person in the family she had told. Well, Somehow or another, that news matriculated up to the, the matriarch and patriarch of the family. And my partner's mom sends a text, very simple text, to uh, my wife and says, I know what happened. I think you should call. Well, shit. <laughs> like, you want to be ahead of the story and you don't want to get texts like that. Um, she calls. The end of that conversation is 
yeah, I, I think, uh, I think Rainier needs to, needs to call your father and tell him what happened. Wow. Okay. So we're just a few days into this all kind of tumbling out. And now I'm calling, uh, the man who I had asked, um, for his blessing. I remember the walk we took around the block when I had asked initially, uh, if they would support our marriage. And, uh, I remember him being very kind to me. And now here I am, a very different conversation. Um, and I take too long to tell him everything. You know, it's just all tumbling out. And God, you're making all kinds of statements and hardly know what you're saying in those moments. It all comes out. Long pause on his part. Long, long pause. And he says... And he breaks down crying and he says, I want you to know, I don't so much care what you did. I care that you came home and I love you and I support yours and my daughter's choices. It was uh, a moment of total open armedness that I was not expecting. And I just sobbed and he sobbed. <laughs> then he paused and this is what he said. He said, now I'm also a basketball coach. And so what I want to tell you is that if one of my players gets injured, um, I directly begin to oversee their recovery because I have a vested interest in them coming back to the courts. So in your recovery from this, you and I are now best friends. Every Saturday morning at 10 a.m., you're calling me and we're talking about the details and the events of your life. For the next year of my life, every Saturday morning at 10 a.m., I was calling my wife's father and talking to him. He became one of that web of support. So those were mentors and elders to me, and it was not easy. It required a level of vulnerability on my part. It required a level of hospitality on theirs. Um, yeah. Incredible. I mean, just, well, <laughs> rarely am I left speechless on this show, <laughs> Rainier, and I'm just like, wow, what an incredible, um, I don't know, gift to be given by someone as well too, with that support. I just think there's so many of us that listen to this and people probably wish they would have that support from other people, whether it's their spouse's parents or, or their partner's parents or anyone in their life. But that's an incredibly courageous uh, gift to be given. It's amazing. When, when I think about infidelity, one of the things that comes up a lot is, um, forgiving of oneself. And that's one thing that I struggled with so much and still do. And I think that if you could speak on self-forgiveness, because I hear so many people talk about this, whether it's a psychotherapist or a coach on the internet, and they're like, you can't beat yourself up for the mistakes you've made. And I wholeheartedly agree with that statement. I find the issue is that when we don't have any accountability, as we talked about last show, then we're just running away right? Because like you just said, with the DM you got that sort of was trying to absolve you of the the action and you had enough self-accountability to say, well, wait a second, I appreciate that, but that's not going on here. That's not what happened, right? I made a mistake. Um, how do we practice self-forgiveness while still holding ourselves accountable to growth? And what did that look like for you as you heal in this sort of new container with your partner? Because it, you know, once something like that happens, it sort of cracks open this wall, this gateway to just an, another side of what I think relationships could possibly be, which is seeing each other's full soul. Um, and and it sounds like you were sort of given a gift of of space to sort of heal with her. And I'm curious on before you started to heal with her, how did you heal yourself, your own guilt? Because being a person that's very sensitive and very full of empathy. 
you know, how did you deal with your own guilt? How did you process it? And do you still struggle with it or, or were you able to overcome it? And there was a switch that you flipped that you're now you feel okay about it. Mm, yeah. Uh, great question. I think initially I was in shock. I was just in such shock. Not because I was caught in the act. I wasn't. It had been months since that particular event had ended. Um, and But again, I knew something that others didn't. I knew that it wasn't an event. It was a whole character. It was a way of being in the world. So the abhorrence was not necessarily guilt. It was shame. It was the way I have constructed my life has afforded me this moment. It was paralyzing. You know, I think whenever you're presented with shame, um, it's an interesting thing. I remember asking uh, my 96-year-old grandmother what the single greatest change in her lifetime was. Um, she looked at me, and she did not disappoint. She said, people used to have shame. They don't anymore. Now, that's a really interesting observation. And she's no psychologist, but I think most affective psychologists would agree that shame is an adaptive emotion. We experience shame when our character is out of congruence with our chosen community, with the ways we have arranged being in the world. And you always have a similar set of responses that you can make. You could hide, <laughs> which is what shame most often wants us to do. You could change your behavior. You could hide and change your behavior, I suppose, at the same time. Or you could just say, you know, screw you and go and found a different community of people who, you know, they're, they're great with how you are as you are. And I think that's where most people live today. We live in such a large, um, well-populated world that there's an affinity group out there for everything. And you can just say, if someone doesn't like your thing, then if you feel shame, you can just go, okay, well, I'm going to go to people who accept me. That's really one of the great gifts mm -hmm. of psychotherapy, I think. Psychotherapy exists in reaction to the dominance of religion across the past, say, 1900 years. Um, religion, which taught us to feel guilty, to taught us to feel wrong, that taught us to feel somehow abhorrent of who we were, that we were broken. And psychotherapy comes along and says, hey, no, 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 no. You're not broken. You're okay. You're okay. You're okay. Be okay. That's really great. Neither of those perspectives is actually going to take you over the finish line, right? The truth was, in that mm. situation, my chosen community rightly did not think I was okay. <laughs> I experienced... Uh, justified shame, right? My shame was justified in that moment. And so I needed to take a series of steps in order to be effective in my life. The goals that I had, namely to continue to be in relationship with my partner, to have a family, and to have integrity within that, needed, required change. I was not uh, I was not frightened of the guilt or the shame. I actually felt that those were really good signals, to be honest. I had done something wrong. And my character, my habits, mm -hmm. had in fact been tremendously ineffective for my goals. So there wasn't a singular moment. I remember a moment lying on my bed and um, and my my wife, Christy, she was there too. And I looked over at her face and... Uh, a particular line from a poem had come to me um, and it just struck me to the core. Uh, what have I done with the garden that has been entrusted to me by Pablo Neruda? I think I quoted that last time. It was so gripping to me when I remembered that. And I just started sobbing, just started sobbing as I looked at the beauty next to me. And I thought I've cheaply sold this downstream. What have I done? And I'll never forget mm. when I said that and I was crying and she reached over and she touched my eyes and she wiped the tears from my eyes and she she smiled, not a kind of maniacal grin or anything like that, but she smiled and she said, good, good, 
I'm glad to see tears. And I think there's kind of a baptism of tears that necessarily occurs in those moments. So I don't want to minimize the the justified guilt, the justified shame that came along with those. Those were tremendously effective emotions at prompting me to change my behaviors. But over time, if you live there, there's a kind of paralysis that happens, right? If you've problem solved, if you've continued to change your behaviors and continued to change um, the way you approach life and you're still experiencing those residual moments um, telling you otherwise that you're not different, that you're not in fact, um, well, that's a different story. And I got to tell you, there's been moments where that really clobbers me, you know, and I, you could probably ask some of my closest friends they, I would, I would see certain things on TV or see or hear news stories about individuals or, or read about specific figures. And I would immediately associate myself with this monstrous behavior, you know, and it would really make me feel a sense of shame. And they would look over at me and say, Hey, you're actually not him. And it would take me a, a moment to remember that I, that you know, I may have behaved in ways that were were deeply um, egregious to my own heart and my own agreements, but I actually wasn't monstrous, right? So what's that? Well, that's that that's that shame projecting outwards, paralyzing. It's a constant battle. But one of the things I, I recognize is that we will all live with regret. I've got regrets. You've got regrets. I will always look backwards and I go, God, yes, I actually regret that moment. And that prompts me to change this moment. So a lot of the behaviors, a lot of the principles, the values, the things that I've worked into my life today emerge out of that justified place. So I don't want to minimize it. And I think that's probably where I'll stop in my answer. Mm. No, it's it's beautiful. And I, I really appreciate you bringing up that regrets are sort of the rubric to our presence, our present self. And I, I find that in my own life, like, you know, there's so many of these t-shirts floating around. It's like, you know, no regrets. Right. And like, everyone's like, don't, don't ever regret anything that you do. And I, I really disagree with that sentiment. I think that as you brought up, we all have regrets and we should have regrets. If we don't have regrets, we're not learning because if we don't have regrets, we're not looking at the areas of our shadow where we made mistake and where, where we made mistakes and where we possibly fell short of the person and the character we are trying to be. Um, by doing actions that we would rather not want to admit that we did or, or words. Right. And I think that for me, uh, having regret in my life, and there's many moments I wish I had back, uh, specifically in my past relationship and beyond that, uh, I use those moments, hopefully not to cause suffering on myself, but to remind myself that, you know, I have character traits and sort of, uh, pillars that I want to live by a code of ethics, if you will, on how I want to be, whether the camera's on or the camera's off, no matter who I'm around. And it's usually out of great love for another human being and hopefully developing love for yourself that you can start to hold yourself accountable to this person you want to build. Right. Um, because I, I like how you said your habits build your character because a lot of times we have this character image of ourselves, which you said, but we're living sort of this pseudo reality or this lie, if you will, because our habits aren't contributing to that character. So a lot of times our habits are sort of out of sight, out of mind, especially the unhealthy ones, but we're, st we still believe we're this person, yeah. right? Because that's what we're showing the world. That's what the world sees. But deep down inside, we feel this great dissonance between our surface self and our deep self. And that's where all this trauma lies, right? It's in between that. It's what we show people versus who we are. And as we bring those that close that gap and bring those two ideas closer together, your soul, your surface self versus like your ego or your ego, your surface self versus your soul, your deep self. When we bring, when we close that gap and bring those two things together, we start to align who we are in truth, right? And we can be more accepting of one another and, and work on our stuff. But I really appreciate you sort of highlighting the idea of regret because I don't think anyone's brought it up on the show before and I haven't, I haven't talked about it in this way, but uh, regret is essential, you know, just to remind us like, especially in situations where we feel like that deja vu feeling like, oh, I've been here before and I've like, I've been triggered or I've been doing my, my decision in the past has been this and that's led to sort of pain or discomfort for me or for another. So might I just change what I'm doing? Might I just change how I respond or change my reaction or change how I'm intaking this information? Might I just breathe into this as opposed to react, right? Um, and I think that's such a wise thing to say. And I think a lot of people will 
will really gain value what you just said, because, um, hearing it just echoes in my mind where it's like, yeah, this is totally right. Like regret is a precursor to healthy behavioral change. I think you're, you're speaking to something and your elucidation of character is so important here. One of the things culturally is we, we believe we have this rather insidious belief that we are more than what we do, <laughs> um, that somehow I am not my actions. This comes out in a lot of different ways, right? So you might, um, you might be someone who spends your time in a very specific way and maybe you're, you're a, a suburban, uh, you know, householder and, and you kind of go through the routines of your day, but, but online somehow you are this revolutionary. You are, you're really out there, you know, you're leading the rebellion in Guatemala and you're doing all these different things. And, oh, you know, if anyone were to meet you on the street, they would be expecting, you know, Shay and, and, uh, but, but at home and then, you know, somebody sees you and they see you in the grocery store. And, you know, you've got like a can of pinto beans in your hand and they look over at you and they go, oh, my God, you're 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 not the revolutionary I thought. And then what do you say? You go, oh, hey, this isn't me. This isn't me. No, no. You you know who I really am. And of course, I'm kind of being a, a bit facetious here, but I think we often get caught in those situations where we end up making those statements. Well, you know who I really am, like on the inside. And this reminds me of Jean-Paul Sartre, you know, who looks down at the man uh, who who kind of gazed up at him and he was a heroin addict. The heroin addict is laying there, track marks on his arms, uh, a needle by his side, and they recognize one another. They had gone to school with each other. And uh, in that moment of recognition, the man says, Jean-Paul, uh, this is not what you think. I am not the man you see before you. And Sartre, in his... Uh, intense way looks at him and says, you are precisely the man I see before me. And I, I think this highlights, we are what we do. We are not other than what we do. Our actions lead to habits. Our habits lead to character. We are what we do. For a lot of people, this is bad news. But I got to tell you, if you think long enough about it, it's really good news. This is what enables me to throw my shoulders back when I walk into a restaurant and I wonder if there's somebody who knows what I've done or, or any of these things that I walk in and I go, oh my God, they know. And then I go, ah, but I know, I know that what I do is not the same as what I did and who I am is not the same as who I was. There's great hope there. profound, my friend. I want to talk about as you are now, and I really would love to get into what was the inspiration to write this book and what can someone expect to find in it? And then we could, we can kind of elaborate on that a little bit. Mm, yeah. Boy, I struggle with this question, by the way. Uh, and um, the reason is because I think the words are not separate from myself is the truth. So it's as good as asking me that existential crisis provoking question. Who are you? Um, I, I, I never know how to answer that. And, um, this is probably a little bit like that. On the other hand, I'm beginning to understand a little bit of what it is. First of all, it's, it's a whiskey. Uh, it's a cheesecake. It's a, it's a cigar. It's not something that you drag in or you gulp down or you munch through very quickly. It's something that you nurse a little while, you sip on, you take a break. That's the how of it all. And I think that begins to get at to what it is. I think what it is, if I could view it somewhat objectively, is an invitation to slow down. You open those pages and the gaps and the words and the images and and even what it's inviting you to step into are all deliberately arranged in such a way to pause and look at your life and ask a rather singular question, which is, is there life before death? Is there life before death? And I think for so many of us, we've been caught in the situation where we're just practicing life. 
know, recently someone who came to me, they said, I want to know, what are your practices? And I told them, I'm not practicing life anymore. I'm only living it. There's only realities. That really is the heart and soul of this book. The title, As You Are, kind of begins to, to get to the root of it. We were talking earlier about these ways of being in the world, how we are in the world. For so many of us, we grow up and we're just graffitied by life, covered up, painted on, over and over. Our parents paint on us, our teachers paint on us, our, our educators, our peers, the state, uh, religion, all of it goes to cover us up so that what is anything like true is almost beyond memory. You know, I, I, I say I, I like this. I say I like that. I say I want this. I say I want. I don't even know what I like. You know, Friedrich Nietzsche said, some men have multiple selves, whereas most men have no self at all. Ouch. And what's he saying there? He's saying that pretty much almost all the things I think are me are just the amalgam collection of voices of other people that I have interpreted as my own, but most of us have nothing like a solid sense of self. As you are is an invitation to become very, very naked with our reality, to step into a place of saying beyond guilt, beyond shame, beyond the cover-up, beyond the has-been, beyond the what happened to me, beyond those stories of either victimizing or victimizer, beyond those stories that society would so easily impregnate us with, who are you? Like the, like the caterpillar in Alice in Wonderland, asking, who are you? And once you secure that solid sense of self, once you find that thing that is harder than granite, um, which for me was in so many ways born through this experience that I, we've just been talking about, when, when you find that place, suddenly you find that you're able to relate to others in new ways, you know? Um, and so this is really the twin challenges of this book that we aim to look at. First, you know, who am I? Second, who am I in relationship to others? Yeah. Which are the two great crises that we are facing today? Uh, getting along with ourselves and getting along with others. Like that show, True Detective, I, I only watched the first season, but there's this great scene between the, the two uh, detectives as they're driving along. And I think one of them looks at the other and says, I don't, uh, I don't do well at parties. And the guy looks over at him and says, eh, you don't do well outside of parties either. And I, I think that that's just about true. You know, it's like a lot of people are like, I don't do well in relationships. Well, you don't do well out of relationships either. Self and others, the twin problems. And so that's really what we're talking about here, um, how to become a self and how to be a self in relationship to others in a way that you experience the fullness of being alive. Wonderful. When we talk about, we, we broke, broke into how to become a self in the last time I had you on. So if people haven't listened, please go listen to the first time I had Rainier on. It was a beautiful conversation. When we talk about how to become a self, many people, you know, if they spend years working on themselves, one of the issues they face is still finding another who aligns with the, with like them in a way where the other person has worked on their selves and become a, and became a self themselves. Right. And I wonder if you could speak on, you know, so many times I see in relationships where one person has done a tremendous amount of self-work or self-reflection and they're perhaps attracting maybe the polar opposite, or maybe uh, they continuously put pressure on on a person to sort of be someone they're not because this person isn't meeting them at a level or isn't sort of coming into themselves. And 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 this is a scenario like you know, let's say person A looks at person B, and this is a romantic relationship, and they're like, I can see all the things inside of you, all these great things, and I can see who you could be, but you're 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 sort of still there's still this gap between your surface self and your deep self, and in my mind, it has to come from, from the inside of the person themselves. But I'm curious from your perspective, like if we, if we work on ourselves and we become on being a whole self, 
but we're still struggling with finding another person to share that with that has also done that work. Where, where do we go from there? You know, because I feel like it's, it's becoming more prevalent, but it is quite rare to meet people like yourself that, that can sit in these spaces that can admit to shame that can grow from it. And that's why immediately I'm like attracted to these people. I'm like, I have to have these people in my life. There's like this collective brother and sisterhood that I feel like I'm building of these individuals that can hold me accountable, but also that I can learn from their wisdom. But how do we find that in a romantic partnership in a world that seems so devoid of self-awareness? Yeah. Um, you, You said something right there that I think goes to the heart of it. When you see women and men who this is true of, when you see individuals who are unique selves, it is so rare that when you encounter them, you instantly want to be around them. <laughs> you instantly want to talk to them more. You want to text them. You want to call them on the phone. You you want to fly across the country. You want to take their workshop. You want to, you 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 want to live in community with them. I mean, like these are probably things you've heard. You know, it's like how how do I connect to you? And I mm. hear this a lot. People want a piece of someone who actually is a solid self in the world because it's so extraordinarily rare that is exactly the appropriate thing. Yeah. We want to connect to it. Yeah. So I I think, first of all, just acknowledging this is very rare. Listen, there's a moment (laughs) I I remember when I told her that I would do anything to be with her and she smirked and she, she asked anything, you know, uh, anything. And I meant it as far as I, I knew in that moment as I think so many of us do, like we'll do anything to, to have this experience, this new delight, this potential of what she could be. Um, she was different from me. Um, and, and maybe I could then be different also if I was just around her. Um, I think the rather ubiquitous cultural sign of having become something secure, something, uh, different or unique or special a self is to having found new love you know like well i I really worked on myself a lot last year and then i found my dream guy um it's easier to signal health by going straight to the punchline uh we we can just avoid the middleman of aloneness altogether um it's easier to avoid your own heartbeat So we kind of walk into the bar or the yoga studio and we ring the bell and we say, okay, I'm here to find a suitor who wants to marry me next weekend. Um, I think society conveniently paints a picture that intimacy addiction belongs to like this lowbrow class of schlumps. But like we all own it. Revolving door relating where we seek to signal that we are healed whole by connecting with someone else who's healed and whole, right? That's why I wanted to be with her. And by the way, my opening question to her, my statement of I would do anything to be with her really signaled I probably shouldn't be with her, you know, because by the time I had her, I didn't want her and she didn't have me was never her that I wanted. I wanted to be a self and you can't find yourself in someone else. And I think that that unfortunately um, is already the, the give, the tell when someone says, you know, God, how do I find love? Well, you don't find love. You don't manifest love. Love manifests you. Love finds you and you don't have to be anxious and go out there seeking it and go onto the, the woke dating website to find, you know, woke love. It will actually come to you. It really will. I know that because I've lived it. It is just like those relationships you spoke of. When you see them, you know, and then go slow. (laughs) goes so preciously slow. We get so anxious in love. We're like, oh my God, this I got to lock this down. She's incredible. This is really, really big news here. She's wonderful. I'm wonderful. Let's get together and be wonderful right now. Right? Go very, very slow. Wonderful can be a convenient kind of rouge we put on for a night, but fades by the morning. You know, uh, ask all the right questions. 
look for all the red flags. You know, I tell this to people who are single and looking. I say, uh, your one job right now is looking for red flags. Like, it's okay. You know, you want to ask the right questions. And so I think going very slow and not being anxious, being a well-regulated self is going to get you a long way. If you find yourself anxious, go back into yourself. <laughs> Rediscover yourself again. Locate that, that sense of being, that sense of ground. And then when you become anxious again, you go back again and again and again. And while you're doing that, I guarantee you that a community of individuals is going to surprise you. You'll see them and it will be rare and you'll connect. Wonderful, Rainier Wild. As you are. So where can people pick up this wonderful book? I'm so excited to crack it open. I know it's in the mail. It's supposed to get here in a couple of days and I'm super excited to read it. Um, where can people find it? And then how can they get in touch with you? Go to the Amazon portal. The, the, uh, the link to Amazon is featured on like every homepage or every iPhone or smartphone near you. I'm sure you can find it and go over migrate to books on Amazon and you'll see it there as you are by Rainier wild. It's wild with a Y. Uh, and, um, you'll see it right there. Click purchase love for you too. I, I was only teasing earlier when I, uh, said that only 12 people have bought it. I've just been so shocked by the outpouring of individuals migrating over clicking the link in the bio and, and uh, doing this is, is really a beautiful thing. I think what it says to me is how really hungry we are for truth, for, for wisdom, not wisdom that is mm. glitzy and glamorous and somehow deep and profound, but is lived in. You know, we want, we want a ratted T-shirt uh, from someone having lived in it for a while. I think that's why people are really responding to this book and um, because I think it's an attempt to actually be very, very naked um, with, with who I am in the world. And when I find that I can be myself <laughs> as I am, the most incredible thing happens. People seem to discover that they can be the, themselves as well. And so this response is just so wonderful. So go over to Amazon. That's where you can find it. You can migrate over to Instagram and click the link on my bio. You'll get there too. I'll throw a link to all this in the show notes, guys. Go purchase Rainier's new book, As You Are, and do him another favor. Uh, after you read it, leave him a review on Amazon. It helps more people see the book, and uh, I'm, I'm sure it's going to make a big difference. So, the the kids have uh, the kids have been telling me this. I've got four kids, and they've been like, "Dad, where's where's the reviews? Like, you're you're we want to see these reviews." I'm like, "I don't know, man." I don't know. They're going to come in any minute now. So do it for the kids, you know? <laughs> <laughs> there we go. Rainier Wild, uh, thank you so much, my brother, for coming on again and sharing pieces of your soul with us. It is always a pleasure to chat with you. Um, I feel like even though this is virtual and I haven't met you in person yet, when you talk, I am so locked in to what you're saying. And, and my, my focus is completely 100% presence, um, which I, which I think is a testament to your energy and that, you know, you, the truth you're speaking demands presence because that is what it is. It is exactly truth. It is what you're experiencing. Uh, you're very unshy of, of telling us about your mistakes, about your loves, your passion. And we need more men like that in the world. And I just want to take a moment to appreciate you and your work and everything you're bringing, um, into society because uh, it's a beautiful thing. I, I know that that's the wrap up statement but I, I just want to say something. The other day I was on a podcast and I shared even less intimate details than I shared today. And uh, I got off that podcast and I felt trembly in my heart, you know, as you can sometimes do when you've just shared a lot of your own self. And I started to think, God, all the people who are hearing this, they know me more than my mother does. And, uh, and I started to get a little frightened. I started to close up a little and shut down. And then this thought hit me. Well, what the hell else are they going to know if not me? 
Like, do I have a different story to tell? Do, do I have a different history somewhere that I can draw on? This is my one wild and precious life. This is my one story. If this isn't what I'm sharing, then I'm just a novelist, not a real person. So that greatly consoled me. And I'm sure after we get off the call here, that's probably what will console me again. But I think I say that less for me and more for the people who are listening. I want you to pause for just a moment and look back at your life, the ups, the downs, the tragedies, the triumphs, and especially the things that you buried, the bodies that you buried in the backyard. And I want you to look back and think something. Think that somebody out there may need that story. Somebody out there may need you to be a whole self and to share your world and what you came through and how you're on the other side. That might be the very thing that gets them through. God, it got me through a hundred times. And maybe it will them as well. 